Thank you, Chad. Um, by the way, never forget that people are always watching and people will always talk. So that's a little mantra that I gave to him many years ago. There's a story behind it. Ask him the story, all right? Ask him the story at some point. Um, I want to take just a few minutes maybe and just give a little bit more of an introduction about myself um, in interview fashion. So I'm going to kind of interview myself for just a few minutes. So, um, so Shay, tell us a little bit about your growing up years. Well, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, grew up in a little town called Aiken, South Carolina. Um, my folks were divorced. I lived with my mom and my brother. Uh, went off to college to study biomedical engineering at Tulane University. And about the, my junior year in college, I realized that is not what I want to do at all. Well, thank you, Shay. Um, tell us just a little bit about your family. Oh, man, I love my family. Um, I've got one wife. I've got three kids. Each of my three kids have three kids. So you guys do the math. How many grandkids do I have? Nine. Very good. Very good. Um, I know you guys are thinking you do not look old enough to have nine grandkids. But alas, it is true. Uh, so <clears throat> can you tell us, Shay, um, what significant thing happened exactly 38 years ago today? That is an awesome question. So 38 years ago today, I became a dad for the very first time. And I, Christy was born exactly 38 years ago today. Today's her birthday. Um, And Christy, I would just say to you, I cannot imagine a dad who could enjoy and love and be more proud of a daughter than I am of you. You are a awesome, awesome daughter, wife, mother, believer. I've, I'm going to tear up if I keep going. <laughs> Um, all right, so Shay, tell us a little bit about uh, your history of ministry. All right, well, I, uh, I spent 25 years as a student pastor, and then as I was approaching my 50th birthday, I kind of transitioned out of that and, and did discipleship for a while. I was an executive pastor for a while, but I've only been in two churches. I was uh, in... First church in Raleigh for 10 years, and then I've been 30 years at my most recent church. Just this past year, I retired from full-time vocational ministry at the church. Um, I still work there on a part-time basis, and I also, interestingly, maybe you'll find this interesting, I work, my wife and I both work part-time for Chick-fil-A. Do we have any Chick-fil-A fans out here at all? Um, work part-time at Chick-fil-A. We are the team chaplains. Now, that means that we, we don't help to sell chicken. Uh, we help to take care of the team and make sure that they are being cared for and we get to have gospel conversations with uh, the team members at Chick-fil-A. And so that's a, that's a pretty cool gig. Um, all right, last question. Uh, why do they call you Rabbi? All right, so that's my nickname. 
around the church where I am. And the, the short backstory of that is this. I was born into a Jewish family, but I was not raised Jewish. I became a believer in Jesus when I was about 16 years old. And uh, just because of my uh, Jewish heritage, a lot of the folks around my church call me rabbi. And um, rabbis also are well-known for being question askers. Um, and, and when I teach and when I preach, I tend to ask a lot of questions. And so that's what I'm going to really do this morning is ask questions of the text. Now, you guys have been working your way through the book of James. Um, it's a book about faith and how it is practically applied to the Christian's life. And my understanding is that last week... Uh, you looked at how true saving faith is evidenced by our words. Um, this week, the big idea is this. Um, faith creates healthy relationships. Or to say it another way, healthy relationships are a result of genuine faith. All right, I want to read the text for you, and then we're going to ask some questions and maybe answer a few of them, starting in James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, of no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, going to ask some questions of the text, 
and we'll see uh, where we go from there. First question is this, what do unhealthy relationships look like? I think the scripture gives us some hints here. Uh, I'm pretty sure you know the answer to what unhealthy relationships look like because my guess is you've experienced them. We've all experienced in some way, shape, or form unhealthy relationships. But here are a few things that James says. In verse 14, there's bitter jealousy, there's selfish ambition, there's boasting, there's lying. In verse 16, he says there's disorder and vile practices. In chapter 4, verse 1, there's quarreling, there's fighting. In verse 2, he says there's coveting and not getting what you want. In verse 3 of chapter 4, there's bad communication. In verse 11, there's speaking evil against one another and judging. We know what bad relationships look like, what unhealthy relationships look like. And so Paul, so James just gives us a, a, a short list of some of the things that are manifested in unhealthy relationships. But what do healthy relationships look like? Well, in ch- verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, he says this, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Healthy relationships are peaceful. They're peaceful. So, verse 14, back up at the beginning of the passage, says this. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. All right, I love that verse. And here's the question. What does it mean to be false to the truth? And how does being false to the truth affect relationships? Okay, a couple of things. Number one, what does it mean to be false to the truth? Well, We create, when we create our own truth, we are being false to the truth. And we create our own truth when we believe that there is no such thing as truth. When we say there is no absolute truth, um, we create our own truth. Um, A second way is when we listen to the lies and the wisdom of this world. Um, What is the wisdom of this world? It's basically the lies that we are being fed every day. And often they are very, very subtle lies. They're half-truths that tend to tickle itching ears. I'll give you an example of some of the ones that you probably hear often. Um, How about this one? Just live your best life now. Or follow your heart. That's probably one of my favorite favorites that you hear all over the place. Just follow your heart. But what do we know about the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things. Do not follow your heart. Um, There's this mantra called you do you. Do what makes you feel good. Be true to yourself. And the common theme in all of these is it's all about me. Me, 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 me. Me. 
I don't know if you guys watch any TV. I find myself watching less and less TV. But uh, the, the commercial slogans out there are feeding us full of lies and half-truths. Um, all right, let's, let's see if, uh, if you know the commercials. We're going to find out just how much you really do watch television. I'm going to give you the slogan, the half-truth, the lie. You tell me who the advertiser is. Um, what is the ultimate driving machine? Pardon? BMW. BMW is the ultimate driving machine. Now, I personally just like a good old Toyota, you know? <laughs> okay, just do it is Nike, all right? The breakfast of champions is what? Wheaties, Wheaties. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I grew up eating Wheaties. I have never been a champion at anything. <laughs> never. It is not the breakfast of champions. Um, the best a man can get Gillette, all right? Uh, Chad, you'll like this one. Good to the last drop. Maxwell House. All right, so I've got a couple of coffee snobs in my family, and I don't think they would ever touch Maxwell House. It is not, it is not good to the last drop. Um, because you're worth it. L'Oreal. Um, there are some things money can't buy for everything else there's MasterCard. MasterCard. What is the happiest place on earth? Disney World. For a couple of days, maybe so, but it will financially drain you and then you are not happy at all. Um, save money. Live better. Walmart. Um, open happiness. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. Yeah, you open it and you drink a bunch of sugar and it, you know, it, yeah. <clears throat> um, we bring good things to life. General Electric. All right. So we are being fed these lies, these half-truths every single day. Now, right now, this is, this is my probably least favorite time of the year up until we get to like September or October of this year. Um, we're, ki we're kind of out of football season. We're before baseball season really starts. Golf hasn't really kicked in. Um, and all we are being inundated with right now is these political advertisements, which are lies as much as anything. So we're just being, left and right, we are being fed lies. So listening to lies and the wisdom of the world is one way in which we are being false to um, what it means to be false to the truth. The third thing is this, just ignoring the truth and the wisdom from above. In other words, you know the truth. You know the truth. This is the truth. You know the truth, but you choose to ignore it. You choose to leave it sitting on your shelf. You don't pick it up and read it. Maybe the only time you hear it is when you, you gather here with the community. You, you know the truth. You know where to find it, but you ignore it. 
You know, the book of James was written for Jewish believers who were very, very familiar with the scriptures. I mean, Jewish, the Jewish people, you know, they started learning the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures when they were little. They knew the scriptures. And so I, I can't help but believe that as the readers of James are are listening to or are reading through this letter that their minds are thinking, that sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. That sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. In fact, did you know that the book of James is often called the New Testament book of Proverbs? Now, <clears throat> I found this out this morning that uh, Grayson was reading, I think, this passage that we're talking about this morning and happened to mention to his dad, that kind of sounds like Proverbs. That kind of sounds like Proverbs. Is that true? That's, that's what I was told. That's what I was told. Now, your dad may have just been making that up. I don't know. Um, but listen, listen to the first couple of verses of Proverbs chapter 2, my son. If you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. And so what James's Jewish readers were being reminded of, even as they were reading, reading this letter is be men and women of the word. Don't ignore the truth. Hold strong to the truth. I teach college students um, back in Durham, and we've got this mantra that we, it probably comes up every week at my house in, in our Bible studies, and it goes like this. Be men and women of the word. Because we are being fed lies and half-truths every single day. And unless we are men and women of the word, then we're going to be susceptible to the lies that are coming our way every single day. And so God created us for relationships. So it only stands to reason that his word can inform Form us of what healthy relationships should look like. So be men and women of the word. All right, question number four. Question number four goes like this. Why do relationships become unhealthy? Why do relationships become unhealthy? All right, chapter four. Verses 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
there's this, there's this <clears throat> internal battle that is going on inside of us. Our passions, the, the Greek word here is one that you have heard of, although you may not know that you have heard of it before, but the Greek word for passions is the word hedones. Do you hear what English word we get from that? Hedon, hedonistic, okay? It's the word for passions. Hedonistic definition goes like this. Living and behaving in ways that mean you, you have as much pleasure and happiness as possible according to the belief that the most important thing in life is to enjoy yourself. Back in 1995, um, when I was a young man of 37, okay, so do the math and you can figure out exactly how old I am. Um, 1995, I was going through a bit of a, I'll just call it a faith crisis. I wanted to know God better than I did. Now, I've been a pastor at this point for 12 years, but I, I just wanted to know God better than I did. I got introduced to a book and an author that my guess is most of you have probably heard of. It's the book um, Desiring God by John Piper. And I loved reading that book, and I loved reading John Piper because he wrote with a, a passion for the Word of God, and he wrote in a way that just engaged my heart and engaged my soul. Now, this is what John Piper would say about hedonism. He would say that we are created to be hedonistic. We were created with an innate desire for happiness and a God-given desire to pursue joy. So it is not a bad thing to desire and to want to pursue happiness. But he makes the distinction between those who pursue happiness in worldly ways and those who pursue it in godly ways. And he coined the phrase, and I love the phrase, I love the phrase, but he coined the phrase Christian hedonism way back in the late 80s, and he made famous a quote, at least in evangelical circles, that goes like this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or to say it another way, we find our greatest and most exhilarating happiness when God is our greatest joy. We find our greatest and most exhilarating happiness when God is our greatest joy. So we are hedonists. The question is, is your passion, is your hedons for personal pleasure or is your, or is your passion for the pleasure of God and to please God. And my guess is, because I know it's true for me, 
my guess is that you that you experience this battle, this internal battle of wanting to pursue pleasure according to the world's ways and wanting to pursue pleasure according to God's ways. And you experience this battle every single day because we are at war. We are at war. So there's this internal battle that is going on. But there's also what I call um, an infernal battle. An infernal battle. We see James alluding to it several times in here where he talks in verse um, 15 about this wisdom that comes down from above that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And we see him over in chapter 4 in verse 7 where he's talking about resisting the devil. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a second. But there's, there's this internal battle, but there's also this infernal battle. One of my favorite John Piper quotes goes like this. He says, you will never know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You will never know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. The enemy of our souls loves to create relational tension. He loves to disrupt unity in the body of Christ. He loves to destroy the one flesh relationship between husbands and wives. Never, ever forget that we are at war. There is not just an, an internal battle. There is an infernal battle. When, when I talk with... Uh, with young couples and do premarital coaching with them, one of the things that we talk about is conflict. And what I try to remind them is this. I tell them, fight the enemy, not each other. Fight the enemy, not each other. Because the enemy of our souls wants to destroy your relationship. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the idea that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted and practiced by the vast majority of Christians. That this world is a playground instead of a battleground. It is a battleground. We are at war. There's an internal battle and there is an infernal battle battle. Okay, question number five. Um, what does faith look like in relationships from a practical standpoint? What does faith in God look like in relationships? Um, we are in my college Bible study. We are right now going through the book of Romans, and we just a couple of weeks ago hit Romans chapter 12. <coughs> and Romans chapter 12 starts off with a couple of famous verses. You probably know them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's interesting that after those first two verses in Romans chapter 12, he starts talking to them about relationships. And so what he's doing is he's trying to make the point, just like James is making the point here in these verses, that when you've got the vertical relationship where it is supposed to be, when your relationship with God is healthy, then the horizontal relationships stand a much better chance of being healthy relationships. Focus on this, and this will be good. Vertical before horizontal. So what does faith look like in relationships? All right, a couple of verses. Um, he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, here's the way that I'm going to say it. Here's the way that I'm going to say it. Faith abides in God's immeasurable love. Faith abides in God's immeasurable love. Well, Shay, where do, you, where do you see that in the text? Well, he's talking here about God's jealousy for his people. In fact, way back in, in Exodus chapter 4, God tells us that his name is jealous. And back in Exodus 34, they've just finished having that whole golden calf incident, and God is really ticked off at his people because they have turned their backs on God and they have gone after these false gods. They've made false gods and he is jealous. He is jealous. His name is jealous. Why is he jealous? Because he loves his people so, so much and he hates seeing what chasing after, what whoring after, what being, what adulterating themselves to the false gods of this world is doing to them. He loves them so, so much. And so John 15 verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. So faith abides in the immeasurable love of God. It is rooted in him. It draws its nourishment for everyday living from God's love, from God's love. So faith abides. Secondly, in verse 7, it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So faith not only abides in God's love, but faith submits to God. All right, when I, again, when I do premarital coaching, I try to help, um, help young brides understand the S word that shows up in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. You know, a lot of people think that that is a dirty word especially in our culture today. What do you mean I have to submit to my husband? It is a beautiful, 
beautiful word. And what submission means for a wife is a, it is a wife's willing response to her husband's sacrificial love. Submission is a wife's willing response to her husband's sacrificial love. And for believers, submission to God is a believer's willing response to our Father's sacrificial love. We willingly respond and do what He says because we know that He loves us so much and He wants the best for us. And He's not going to ask us to do anything that that he that is not going to be for our joy so we submit to god because it is our willing response to god's sacrificial love so faith abides faith submits faith resists look at verse again the last part of verse 7 submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you resist. All right, how do you resist the devil? I'm going to give you um, two hints, um, a word and a deed, okay? The word is this. I love, I love the way that the NIV puts Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where it says this, for the grace of God appeared that offers salvation to all people and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. It teaches us to say no. Now often when I read that verse, I read it like this. It teaches us to say no because that's a word we need to use more than we do especially when the evil one is in our face and is tempting us. We need, we need to just be bold and say, no, no, no. We, we tend, we, you know, we're, we're yes people, right? We're yes people. We like to please other people, and we're yes people. But God's word says you need to learn to use the word no if we are going to resist the evil one. Deed. How do we resist indeed? Um, you're probably familiar with a fellow by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany way back during World War II, and he was a part of the resistance. He was a part of the resistance, and uh, he, he knew that he couldn't just stand by idly and watch what um, Adolf Hitler was doing to the people of Germany. And so not only did he preach about it, but he did something about it. In one of his letters, he made this statement. He said, The astonishing inability of most people to take any kind of preventive action, one always believes that he can evade danger until it is too late. The astonishing inability of most people to take any kind of preventive action. Dietrich Bonhoeffer determined that he had to actually do something to resist evil. And it cost him his life. He ended up in a German cell and just days before 
um, before the war ended, he was put to death. So, but he resisted, not only in word, not only in talking about it. He said it was not enough just to sit on the sidelines and condemn evil. He took action. He took action. And we need to be a people of action who resist the evil one, not just in word, but also in deed. So faith abides and faith submits and faith resists. Faith draws near. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. Okay, how do you draw near to God? Well, you guys know the answer to that. Take up the word and you ponder it. And you memorize it. And you talk about it with other people. And you sing it and you obey it and you pray it. You draw near. He's given us the word that we can draw near to him. And, and, and you pray and you gather together as community and worship and you fellowship in the name of Christ. This, these are the ways that God has given us to draw near to him. So we draw near to God regularly because that's what faith does. That's what faith does. And then he says... Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Faith repents. Faith repents. Repentance is a a genuine turning away from sin. It's a trust that God's ways are better than our ways. It's a trust that God's ways are more satisfying than the ways of this world. So faith repents. Faith repents turns away from the ways of this world. And then lastly, he says, uh, faith shows humility. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Faith shows humility. Humility is having a correct assessment of who we are in relation to who God is. We have a tendency elevate ourselves and to diminish God. We need to have a great, big view of who God is. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is a great God. He's a majestic God. We need to have a big, big view of God. So when the vertical relationship with God is right, our horizontal relationships can thrive. And when our relationship with God is right, our relationships with people are generally healthy. As a pastor, when I encounter people dealing with relationship issues, I can always, I can always trace it back to a problem in their relationship with God. All right, if the band wants to come on up here, um, starting to wrap up. Um, I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to leave you with one more question. What do your relationships in this world, church, at work, at home, wherever, what do your relationships in this world reveal to you about your faith?
Faith in God creates healthy relationships, or to say it another way, healthy relationships are a result of genuine faith. If you do not have healthy relationships with people, then start by examining your relationship with God. Fix your relationship with God, and you'll be surprised at how much healthier your relationships with people will become. Hey, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and for the hope that we have in Jesus. And I ask that you would remind us day in and day out that you have loved us with an immeasurable love. That you desire for us to submit and to resist and to demonstrate humility and and we ask that you would do a great work in and through us as we know you and serve you and obey you because you are a great, great God. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.